man at the forefront and the cutting edge of science, using that for the good of humanity to solve crimes and put criminals away is a very romantic notion, really. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. We're back with Bonnie McBird. We're going to talk about her book, What Child Is This? from HarperCollins 2022. The main character of her book is a character you probably know. His name is Sherlock Holmes. He is a detective. He's pretty smart. And one of my questions is, why do you think Sherlock Holmes is such a compelling character that he's, I mean, he's almost a mythological character at this point. One is he's kind of the first superhero in his sense in literature. Mm. And Arthur Conan Doyle's kind of a genius in creating this complicated man. So first of all, he's a straight up hero. I mean, he solves crimes, he saves people, he sends murderers to jail, he stops horrible crime sprees. So he's a straight up hero. But what Conan Doyle also did with him is make him very complicated and a bit of a mystery himself. So this is just like, you know, catnip. (laughs) He's a complicated guy. You sense there's a darkness in his background and there's something in his makeup that makes him a little bit vulnerable. He's a little bit Asperger's possibly. He's a little bit bipolar, definitely by modern description. And so he isn't always socially polite, which of course all kids love. (laughs) We like to have a hero that doesn't have to play by the rules all the time. But he has the best friend of any person in fiction. The friendship between Watson and Holmes is just genius on the part of Conan Doyle. Because we all want a friend like Watson, and we'd all like to be a friend like Watson. So you've got these two men that are them against the world. It's very fun. And it's weird because, you know, we think of Sherlock Holmes as dark and mysterious and the Hound and the Baskervilles and the ghosts and all kinds of stuff. And we think of it as dark and scary. And it is. I mean, people get murdered. People get their ears cut off. You know, snakes come down things and bite people, all kinds of stuff, you know, dark and scary. But there's also a cozy element to these books. So because you start and end around the fire at 221B with these two men (laughs) and you want to be with them. It's very comforting because the other thing is, you know, that Sherlock Holmes will deliver the goods. He will solve the crime. He will send the bad guy to jail. So you don't know sometimes how he's going to do that. And sometimes there's danger and doesn't feel like it's going to work, but yet he does. And so you can be assured, unlike in real life, (laughs) that things will work out. So it's like a character driven procedural. Yeah, it is like a character-driven procedural, but it is also in a setting that is almost part of the character. The late Victorian era in Britain was a time very similar to our own. And London is, in a sense, a character here. And so Sherlock Holmes represents the triumph of rational thought and the lean towards scientific process. And at the end of the 19th century, great many technological and scientific inventions were just totally changing people's lives. From 1850 to 1900, railroads, clocks, telegraphs, eventually telephones, electric lights, vaccinations, anesthesia, 
all these things weren't there and now they are. And suddenly people were transported all across the country and they could get news, telegraphs, they could get news from everywhere. Life completely changed. And so it happened in this rather short period of time. And people were kind of reeling from this just as the information age has done that to us now. So a man at the forefront and the cutting edge of science using that for the good of humanity to solve crimes and put criminals away is a very romantic notion, really. And so there's a romance to the setting in which Sherlock Holmes operates. And so I think there's more to it just than the procedural thing. But the character development is far greater than people typically attribute it. So most people who imitate the Holmes stuff concentrate on writing a good mystery and a good crime with good deductions. And that's certainly part of it, but it's usually more underneath it. And Conan Doyle wrote 56 short stories and four novellas, but he didn't write novels. So when I decided about 10 years ago to write my first novel, I was recovering actually from a bad illness. And I, it was a recovery activity, actually. It was like, what do I want to do now? I want to do something I haven't, I've always wanted to do, but I haven't done. It was a bucket list item, finish a novel. And so I um, thought, well, I'd really like to write Sherlock Holmes, but I want to write it long form. So what does it mean when you take a Sherlock Holmes short story or novella, as he did, and stretch it into long form? Like, what do you have to do structurally? But it's not just the structure that has to change. It's also the content. You've got to have enough thematic content to buoy up an entire novel. And yet it's the genre of this is mystery, thriller kind of stuff. So you can't load on theme too much because readers don't want that. They don't want to be beaten over the head with theme, you know, (laughs) when you write a book report on this. No, but on the other hand, there needs to be some meaning underneath it. So I decided my first novel was Art in the Blood. In the original Conan Doyle, there's in the Greek interpreter, Watson remarks that both Holmes and his older brother, Mycroft, both share this deductive reasoning ability and this prodigious memory for facts and the, and the ability to synthesize. So he remarks that they both have this and it must be hereditary. And Holmes says art in the blood is liable to do the strangest things. And Holmes is not only a scientist in his deductive stuff, but he's also an artist. And an artist sees patterns that other people don't see. An artist sees things that other people don't see. And an artist is very sensitive and the rest of the world often thinks they're a flake. <laughs> and th- th- there's a lot of components to being an artist. So I, th- I thought it would be really interesting to kind of underlay with the detective story, the mystery part of the story, to underlay that with the theme of the sort of Jane faced gifts and detriments of being an artist. And you're an artist, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, no, this is very much resonating with me. You know, so on the one thing, you have more powers, but you're maybe taken less seriously. On the other hand, you also are emotionally volatile, usually. And Holmes definitely has his highs and lows, and he does in the originals. It's not something I've added. And Watson is a very different kind of man. He's a former military man. He's kind of a steady character. But he's also a ladies' man, a crack shot, and a gambler. So he's, he's got some romance to him as well and some excitement. But he's a very different man from Holmes. And so this contrast, and, and I'm just so fascinated with the Holmes character, and um, go back to your question of why is he still popular 130 years later? Because he's so complicated. Now, Conan Doyle didn't give us a lot of backstory of Holmes. 
So uh, we don't know much about his family, except he has an older brother, Mycroft. His family were country squires. That means they were landowners. He went to university, but either dropped out or was kicked out and moved to London, where he studied whatever he wanted and became a detective. So we really know nothing more than that. And that's not much. So he's a man who with holes in his background. So the tendency for people now writing Sherlock Holmes try to fill all those holes. It's like, no, I think you have to retain some of the mystery because that's one of the appeals of the character. And yes, I look at these holes and maybe around the edges of them, but I don't want to try to fill them all in because that's part of the appeal. Right. I mean, who wants to see Darth Vader pod racing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, George Lucas, but like, come on. I mean, who, wa who wants to see that? My wife is uh, younger than me and she is of the age where the prequels were the first Star Wars that she saw. Oh, and she thinks oh, they're I... great, but Darth Vader was cool just as like a bad guy. Yeah. I didn't need to know where he came from. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I decided though that when I stretched this thing into a novel that I had to add some thematic content as well as alter the structure of the storyline. So what child is this is the fifth in the series, but you can read them in any order. They're standalone. They're sequential in years, but the stories don't rely on you having read the one before so that you just read them in any order. The conceit I, in What Child Is This, I don't know if this is the same in all of them, is that you, Bonnie and McBird, are sitting in 221B in the library that is now a Sherlock Holmes museum, and you have just unearthed a manuscript that John Watson never published. Well, pretty close to that. Actually, I found the first one tucked into an 1880-something book on cocaine addiction which I found in the Welcome Library, which is a medical library near here. And, and I found this first manuscript tucked in the back of that. That became Art in the Blood. But then after that, a woman who worked at the British Library, when they moved, the British Library was originally in this dome area of the British Museum, and now it has its own place. And when they moved to its new place, some boxes got moved, and this woman found this box of old Watson manuscripts. And when she read um, Art and the Blood, she called me, gave them to me. That's why I have these. <laughs> well, let's just be clear. This is fantasy. We're, we're making this up. No, no. I remember the BSI's, uh, the Baker Street Irregulars, and that's called playing the game. That's something that they do. <laughs> My first thought was the Bullshit Institute. That was, okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I thought I'd let you say that. My pleasure. But it is the Baker Street Irregulars, and it, it's an honorary group, and you have to be invited in and it's all crazy Sherlockians. They're quite fun, actually. Yes. So this was really my main question from reading this book. <laughs> Just tell us about the contemporary world of Sherlock Holmes fandom, and how did you find yourself involved in this? Okay. Personally, you know, as a kid, I didn't, there was no fandoms. There was just kids who liked books or certain comics or whatever. I, I fell in love with Sherlock Holmes on the page by reading the entire canon when I was 10. And I read it again, and I just loved this character. And so all through my life, I tracked this character. And so, you know, there was young Sherlock Holmes. There was the Jeremy Brett stuff in the 80s and 90s. There's a bunch of movies that have been made over the years. And then there was House. House is Sherlock Holmes, for example. So there's all kinds of variations. That's exactly what I was thinking when I called it a character-driven procedural. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking of, was thinking yeah. of House. Yeah. House is definitely Holmes because, uh, you know, the name, and but also Wilson and Watson. And, I mean, there's a million. He, he's, he's based on Sherlock Holmes. The, I, never, I never thought of that, even though yeah. that's so obvious. As the series went on, of course, his, his address is 221. And they did all kinds of little things like that. But anyway, so, so I've loved this character forever. 
when I was deciding to write a novel around 10 years ago, right about then the first Danny film came out. And then also shortly after that, Benedict Cumberbatch TV show started. Both of those just relit my fires. I love them both. And I wanted to write them as young men. So in the 1880s, according to Conan Doyle's own chronology, they were only in their 30s. And often in the movies, like you think Jeremy Brett's, they're often portrayed as men in their 50s and even older. But in fact, they were young, virile guys in their 30s. And I, and I like that. So mine are in their 30s, which also makes them a little more raw. They don't know everything. <laughs> they know a lot. But, you know, they're still forming as people. And so they're lively and I put more action in it because somebody said to me, oh, you know, Robert Downey Jr., that was full of action. That's nothing like the canon. You know, he's, there he's doing martial arts. and about, It's like he does martial arts in the canon. He knows Martitsu, which was a martial art that was invented at the end of the 19th century. It's a combination of jujitsu and stick fighting. And it was a real thing. And he does that. And also he meditates in my book. I love it when my critics go, oh, it's an anachronism. It's not an anachronism. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> because he actually, there was a, something called the Pali Tech Society in London right at that time that brought what we now call mindfulness meditation. Vispasana meditation was brought to London and people were all over it at the time. So yes, <laughs> of course, he actually knew that. And in one of the Conan Doyle stories, he's going on about the religions of Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka now, I think. Yes, he knew all that, and he was doing it. And there's a picture of him meditating on a stack of cushions in the original 60 stories. Wow, I didn't know that. I researched the heck out of this stuff. Tell us about the you know the Baker Street Irregulars. There's, so there's convention. Oh, yeah. Baker Street Irregulars is the sort of umbrella group, but there are what we call scions, and they are all over the world, really, of groups of people who get together and talk about the stories and drink a lot of whiskey and eat meals together and go, you know, have have a lot of fun. Basically they have contests and they do plays and they do presentations about different elements of Victorian life. And so there's a huge community of Sherlockians and in the UK they're called Holmesians, <laughs> but same thing. And I'm a member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London also. I'm on the, the council there. And so I've been active with them, but I, I've been uh, in, in LA when I was, there more of the time, I ran a little scion called the Sherlock Breakfast Club. <laughs> so, <laughs> and just they're all over the place and they just do all these fun things because people just really love the character. And then they have violent arguments over like which adaptations were really valid and good and which ones were just stupid. And blah. You know, so people love and hate all these different ones and get into debates over them. Well, Bonnie, we've had members of the Medieval Historical Society on the podcast. We've had oh, <laughs> members of some society that has to do with early, like pre-1600 American history. We've had all kinds of nerds on the show, but I think you are by <laughs> far the biggest. Oh, I am the nerdiest <laughs> of the nerds. I tell you, look, I'm married to the man who invented the personal computer. I've just lived with this man who, who is all computers all the time. Okay, so you don't really get any nerdier than this. <laughs> So, you know, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I did just want to like point out to our audience that your husband <laughs> literally invented the personal computer. He did. Yeah. Pretty amazing. And I think I was the first screenwriter to edit my script on a computer, on a WYSIWYG computer so that I could see the script and you know, everything and edit it right on the computer. Because I, I edited my early draft of Tron 
on the Alto computer at Xerox Park. And it was a tall screen, like about the size of a regular piece of paper. And it was black print on white, so it looked like a piece of paper. And it was much more WYSIWYG than they were for a long time after, actually. Mac eventually got there. But, and uh, yeah, so I edited the script on, on the Alto. So the last question that we have on the show is to recommend two books to our listeners. I will recommend The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. Awesome. And it's a daily meditations by a really, really good writer who you have to ignore his sort of weird name and the fact that his author photograph makes him look like a disgruntled basketball player. <laughs> but he's really a smart man and a really good writer. So there's that one. I'm trying to think what else. I guess Middlemarch by George Eliot. Yes. That would be good. Bonnie, actually, on on this podcast, so you don't know this, but on this podcast, that is actually the correct answer. Oh, it is? Yes. What do I win? <laughs> I don't know, but whatever it is, I'll send it to you. Yes, okay. I, I am, I think, well known for being a huge fan of Middlemarch and saying oh, unequivocally yeah. that it is the best novel written in English, and I will fight you if you disagree. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, when I moved here and, and I have an English friend said to me, do you, you know, how much do you love it here? I said, I totally love living here. And she goes, and later on in the conversation, she said, oh, have you read Middlemarch? And I said, no, I haven't. She goes, you can't love England if you haven't read that book. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> and I think you can't not love England if you have read it. Yeah. I think much the way that you have to have this admiration for Russia if you've read those Russian novels. And I, I include Gentleman in Moscow written by a guy from Boston in that canon now. Yeah, but at least in Gentleman in Moscow, I can remember who the characters are. Some of the Russian novels, like I have to take notes because there's so many of them and they have so many names that are confusing. <laughs> Tolls has a, a great little aside about that, about how, you know, the Russian novels are, everybody has like a patronymic and a diminutive and right, right, right. two names. Yeah, yeah. And also there's only like 40 names, yeah, yeah. but they're just in different combinations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bonnie McBird, for being on the show. It seems like you are a really prolific writer, so hopefully you'll have a new book out soon and we'll just have you back on and talk about something else. Thank you very much, and I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you're thinking... I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super simple, takes a second, doesn't cost anything, and it really, really helps the show out. I'm not familiar with the term WYSIWYG. Is that a brand name? Uh, what you see is what you get. All right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. That was an early computer design term. And you're right. Not too many people use that anymore. That might be the fact of the podcast. I'm so glad to learn that. I didn't know that. <laughs> the fact of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> Do I get a button um, for that? <laughs> <laughs>